Welcome to It's a Mad World, a podcast on the politics of mental health and the mental health of politics. Our guest this week is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and visiting professor of child psychiatry and mental health improvement based in Lincoln in the UK. He writes from a critical psychiatry perspective and has published widely on mental health. His latest book is Insane Medicine, How the Mental Health Industry Creates Damaging Treatment Traps and How You Can Escape Them. Professor Sami Tamimi, you are very welcome to the It's a Mad World podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's my pleasure to be here. It's good to see you, Sammy. I, I, I haven't seen you. I think I think we met in Gothenburg a, a, a couple of years ago at a very nice dinner out in the cold, which is, I think, one thing that's happened to Irish people here. We've realized that we can actually go outdoors uh, and, uh, you know, walk and maybe even eat and drink. Uh, the the pandemic really, before we get on to, and I, I'd like to really talk to you about your book, which is a great, I mean, it really is a fantastic exposition of really almost everything that's wrong and certainly the most important things I think that are wrong in the mental health uh, field. Uh, but I think a lot of the stresses that the pandemic uh, put on us, on, you know, how our societies function, uh, really echo with a lot of the things you talk about in mental health, and of course, physical and mental health are, are connected and so on. Uh, but I think your experience in the UK, particularly, as, as you say in your book, the, the countries that are the most neoliberal, the ones that have run down their public services and are geared the most towards profits at all count, have really done extraordinarily badly uh, in the uh, pandemic. They have. And um, in, in many ways, the pandemic shines a light on how we construct an idea both in terms of mental health but increasingly also it shows us how we construct ideas about um, the physical health. So for example we know that the communities that seem to have been most badly hit have tended to be those communities that have been deprived, that have had to do the frontline jobs that uh, include things like the care sector, the transport, keeping factories open, keeping supermarkets open. And these tend to be the sectors which disproportionately have people from uh, ethnic minority backgrounds too. And what we've seen in a lot of the discourse that goes around publicly uh, about this higher death rate amongst these uh, deprived communities was um, was a tendency towards individualizing what are essentially social, political, and economic drivers. So you heard about how this is uh, something to do with cultures that um, don't uh, that are dis- distrusting of the um, uh, political classes, and so don't listen to the advice that these are cultures who. Um, tend to want to spend time together and so don't really know how to go about with um, uh, isolation and um, social distancing. That these So, so there were lots of um, suggestions that the reasons that there are these higher rates amongst these groups was something to do with their inability to take personal responsibility. It was a very individualizing yes. narrative blaming their cultures, blaming their way of life, blaming their lifestyle. Uh, And it's been really hard to uh, shine a light properly on the conditions, the necessity to um, uh, for them being forced to carry on working while um, Mm. more uh, people in more stable jobs, in in more um, reasonably well-paying jobs uh, and very well-paying jobs, were able to stay at home, were able mm. to work from home, and were able to physically and materially mm. self-isolate because their um, material well-being was was mm. um, was wasn't in threat in the same way these mm. deprived communities. I, so I, I, you I, see yes. here the same sort of the same sort of paradigm mm. that you see in mental health, where things that are to do with social, economic, and political drivers get marginalized Mm. and instead we have coming to the fore this paradigm that we have a mental health pandemic going on and that this mental health pandemic 
is um, something that's going to affect people mm. as individuals and the cures or the ways to help is that we have to uh, endlessly expand mental health services mm. rather than paying attention to um, people who've lost their jobs, who've uh, lost people, who've um, uh, had their 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 they're unable to pay their rents and so these real material mm. things that have happened in their I, lives. I I think the the other just before we go on to it the other parallel I think in the pandemic that you draw attention to uh, it, it really I think it's a key focus in your book is the tendency to uh, focus on the technical aspect uh, of care rather than. The, the human and social importance of what you're doing. And uh, if we look at, say, the British response in particular, a, you know, leading developing nation and so on, the kind of 19th century elements of public health uh, contact tracing, you know, in a country in the tradition of Jon Snow, not the Game of Thrones hero, but the public health hero who tracked down the cause of, uh, um, um, I think it was cholera, yeah. And took the the handle off the Bow Street pump and so on. Uh, whereas during the uh, the pandemic, there was a kind of a fetishization of the look for uh, a a cure. Uh, no mention of why they hadn't got a cure, which is largely to do with the way drug companies operate on a profit basis. But then this the focus on the vaccination, which again, given the ignoring of the global uh, lack of intervention to reduce transmission uh, we we heard a lot that variants cause transmission but very little about the fact that va- transmission causes variants that if you primarily keep transmission low you won't have that many variants to worry about and if you then have your vaccination program which is very uh, good and worthy uh, you can have a, a, a you can maximize the suppression but you know this this desire for a kind of silver bullet uh, and mm. and to a certain extent, even if they wanted to, I think the destruction of public health as a specialty, as part of the National Health Service, became really obvious during the pandemic. They just didn't have the infrastructure, yeah. even if they wanted to do it. They they have so run down their specialists and services that they would have found it very hard. Yes, we, we are in an era where there is this idea that... Um, we need to turn to technical mm. uh, technical progress in order to solve the various problems. So the same thing is going on with the ideas about how to tackle climate change. Mm. Yes, we're, yeah, yeah. Instead of instead of thinking about what is the economy for, mm. what 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 purpose is the economy? We still focus on the idea that um, it's an unreconstructable good that. GDP should increase yeah. year on year, uh, and um, and we should look at it sort of on a country by country basis in, in, instead of looking at what's going on, without asking that question. So what if GDP rises? Mm. What 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 is the economy for? What why why do we want to be richer? Mm. Do we do we really want to keep consuming more? Well, as uh, I think. Well, uh, uh, Sorry, as Mark as Mark said, you know, accumulation, accumulation. It's Moses and the prophets. It's a, it's a driving. It is a self uh, replicating element of the system uh, that we yes. live in. There, there there isn't a mind. <laughs> there isn't a mind behind this. This is no. a machine. I, so I'm I'm going to just move to your book because I really do want to talk about. It. I think it's a fantastic. Uh, it's a fantastic read. It covers a, an incredibly wide scope uh, and and really draws attention to some of the social changes around childcare uh, and work and so on uh, that are influencing the development of mental health, uh, very much uh, neglected and so on. But in your introduction, you you say, uh, I have written this book as a warning. Do you want to maybe start there? Why did you feel uh, it's necessary to warn the public? And, and just in general, what about? The longer I've worked in mental health, I think like most people who who gets interested in becoming active and working in mental health, you tend to come to it with some altruistic ideas. Uh, um, Sometimes that can cross over to being a bit of a saviour complex, which uh, a a lot of us uh, (laughs) may, may, may suffer with. But generally it's people who have 
an intention to try and help people. It's not a glamorous part of healthcare. It's not a particularly lucrative part of healthcare. So it generally attracts people who have good intentions. But over time, uh, the longer I've uh, been uh, working as a psychiatrist um, and witnessing what had happened in the profession, uh, in the part of psychiatry that I chose to go into, which is in, in child and adolescent psychiatry, and the reason I went into child and adolescent psychiatry was uh, when I first uh, had uh, experience of child and adolescent psychiatry in the early 1990s, it felt like a, a refreshing relief from what I was beginning to think of in terms of adult psychiatry, which appeared to be transforming itself slowly into a, becoming a glorified pharmacist, really. Um, uh, and um, much of the more interesting uh, angles, the social angles, the psychotherapeutic angles were sort of be becoming more and more something that somebody else does. But child psychiatry was very different. It took a very, the, the, the child psychiatrists I met earlier in my training were quite systemic in their thinking. And then I came across family therapy, and family therapy was um, interested in politics, interested in power. Mm. And so uh, it just made sense to me that when you work with um, people in distress or people struggling with behaviors of their children or whatever, that you don't just look at the young person and assume that there's something going wrong with them that somehow you have to fix. You have to look at their circumstances uh, and um, uh, understand that broader context. And then as the years went on, I I've witnessed with growing alarm and eventually horror as to what's happened to child psychiatry. <laughs> as all those things that I saw were creeping into the adult psychiatry world, started creeping into child psychiatry until child psychiatry became colonized by that mindset, and that's a mindset which sees um, the presentations that come to us as um, our task being that of empirically classifying people into various typologies for which we can deliver technical um, remedies. So that's the whole point of, of a classification system, is to uh, choose the correct remedy. So what's happened in the world of child psychiatry is that it's imported in that same way of working and thinking, this, this idea that you match, you make a diagnosis and you match your treatment to the diagnosis. And it's something that um, highlights an idea that you have an expertise uh, in being able to elicit what was going wrong inside that person and how you might remedy that. And as I saw that um, trend growing and growing, I started coming across more and more young people who are spending their, much of their childhood with these uh, labels, these disease labels attached to them. And um, I saw more and more people graduating into potentially starting their life as a long-term mental health patient. And the more I became familiar with both the science, realizing that this was not based on any scientific progress, not based on any scientific um, discovery, that we were actually constructing ways of thinking about people, that I came to the conclusion that the systems we work in have become a lot better at creating patients and creating potentially patients for life, uh, creating potentially consumers of various pharmaceuticals, but also various psychotherapies um, uh, for life, some of them for life, rather than doing what I originally thought I would be doing when I came into this profession, which is trying to maybe reduce the numbers of people who might go on to experience long-term problems, hmm. helping shed light and um, into understanding that most of the things that come to us fit within the diversity of human experiences that I would regard as potentially 
ordinary and or understandable. Yeah, and I, not something I, that we should be afraid of. I think that one of the things that strikes me reading the book, Sammy, besides the parallel, I mean, we're roughly the same age and we're both, uh, we both chose the same profession. So we were yes. more extraordinarily alike, uh, than, uh, <coughs> that I'd say as usual <laughs> in a discussion like this. But it, it helped me reading your book. Uh, I, one of the things I kind of realized was that this has happened one very recently. I mean, most of the changes you're talking about commenced in the early to mid 90s. Uh, I, I, I kind of think of it as the second wave of the kind of neoliberalization of mental health with the first wave starting in the late 70s and into the 80s and really reorganizing adult mental health in that bagam and tagam and treatum kind of uh, uh, mechanical approach. I, I literally, I, I, I literally saw, yeah, yeah, I, I literally saw my first um, um, pharmaceutical stand at a child psychiatry conference in the late 90s. It would have been ooh, 95, 96, maybe. And I'd yeah. just never seen one before. These were things you commonly saw. But the thing I wanted to, uh, so one thing I got from your, your your account was the notion that this happened to us. We we came into a specialty that was very systemic, looking out at you know immediate family, community, systemic uh, factors, but also a, a a very strong sense of the child as a very dynamic and developing uh, organism, and and really as part of who we are one of our most spectacular uh, periods in our in our life uh, history but i think the thing that you said that to me was the most shocking was the double realization one there is no science behind what is happening here and of course you're always a bit late if you're any sort of proper you know if you have a scientific bone in your body you don't reject stuff as soon as you see it. You have to have a look at the literature. And of course, there's a kind of a delay. You, you talk about the ADHD literature notoriously, you know, a long term follow up took way longer than the short term follow up that was uh, initially printed. But I think the second realization was that not alone was the number of children who were being increasingly described as having something wrong with them uh, expanding. But the amount of time for which they were suffering or not well or having this problem as such was not reducing with this intensive seeking out of these children and finding them earlier. We were actually seeing children who are now spending longer uh, uh, attending services and on the face of it, at least having a problem. It was Robert Whitaker, I think, particularly who really hammered. Now, this is. When was Robert's book? 2009, 10? Uh, the Anatomy of an Epidemic. I know he had touched on it in, yeah. in the earlier book. No, no, yeah. But how did... So I, I get from your book those two things, the kind of lack of scientific base and the lengthening and broadening of the group of children being described as problematic or disordered. Uh, these were shocking developments for us and, and unexpected. We had no reason to think this was about to happen. It, uh, it, it is indeed um, when you start peeling back and looking underneath the shiny, gleaming, um, pseudo-technical language we use um, about diagnosis and um, prevalence and prognosis and all these very scientific-sounding language languages, you see, um, when you peel back this, this, um, shiny surface, you see a, a totally rotten undercore of manipulation, of, um, cover up, of downright lies at times. And basically, you, you've outlined very nicely the two pillars that led me to come to the conclusion that mental health services, the way we've constructed them now, are um, are actually dangerous for your mental health. They create more mental health problems than they alleviate. So the the, the first pillar was was looking at the science, and and my first lesson, if you like, in beginning to appreciate that there was there was a big gap between what was being said and what was being discovered in the scientific literature was when I was in the mid nineties. Um, and this is really before I'm really beginning to form my ideas, long before that. 
and I was working with a consultant in East London uh, as a as their trainee. And um, the concept of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder (ADHD) was was just really coming in. Up yeah. up until then, it was um, you know it, it was a different word. We we called it hyperkinetic disorder, and I hadn't seen anybody diagnosed with hyperkinetic disorder in my first you know um, one or two years within child psychiatry. Though it was yeah. very rare, it wasn't yeah. something oh, yeah. that we were particularly interested in or yeah. particularly drawn to. But ADHD was was coming across the Atlantic to us, and there were, I remember there were articles in papers and so on. And my consultant at that time was very interested, and he said, "Let's do some sort of um, research on its prevalence." Because this was in, in in East London, in Hackney, on its prevalence amongst our sort of ethnically diverse community. And would you like to join me? And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'd love to join you." And um, so I volunteered to go and kind of do a literature review. And I was very troubled because I came across, I, I started looking at the uh, original papers, some of the history, uh, the review papers. I started getting really interested and I started getting quite disturbed because I was trying to get a handle on what is mm. This ADHD. What yes. is it? This thing I've been sort of sent out to search well, for. I've been told that <laughs> what does it look like? Something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, surely you're not telling me it's just somebody saying it's attention deficit hyperactivity. You know, it's just those words. Hmm. It must have come from somewhere. There must be a scientific starting point. There must be something somewhere that got people. And what I discovered was there wasn't. There was an assumption that had taken root that there is this thing called ADHD and then everything else was being built on this assumption. So at some point, somebody makes uh, popularizes this idea and comes up with some criteria and that becomes ADHD. So it never came from any scientific discovery. It just came from someone's imagination, basically, a particular way of, of looking at a very small aspect, a very narrow aspect of somebody's life without any understanding of why, first of all, we should simply focus on that to exclusion of other things and why, even if we focus on these behaviours, why they should be thought of as medical and um, uh, without any awareness of the subjective nature of the things that people were being asked to rate, because the rating scales that were, they were using all had the questions that started with often. So often can't sit still. And I'm thinking, how often is often? Yeah. There, there was there was no age thing. Mm. It was just something mm. about, you know, it had to have been present before the age of six. That was the criteria at the time I was looking. Hmm. But um, yes, and yeah, like actually, doctors, actually, you could be an eleven-year-old and a seven-year-old, hmm. and you, you're still going to be reading the same. So it just seemed to me, yeah. how can we get to something so context depleted hmm. and think of this? Yeah. And that was that was my first experience uh, that really got me looking at the scientific literature, and I've been sure. following the scientific literature for that, uh, and particularly autism and childhood <coughs> depression, because these are the big three, yeah. I think, yeah. that have really, and they've expanded massively to the point where I don't think there has ever been a generation of young people so exposed mm. to medicalization of their experiences as this generation. Yeah, you, you raise a, a, an, an issue, uh, and if we move, because like, again, I, I suppose you, you talk, and maybe we'll talk later about the why question, but the why question really does um, force itself uh, on on uh, people and on parents, and you talk quite a bit, you have a whole chapter on, on uh, parents' uh, worries for their, their children. But I think you outline very well early on the notion of what is needed from children and this notion of focusing in particularly on social skills. Uh, I think uh, an earlier obsession was that children should be well behaved, as in they should do what they're told. I mean, that goes back quite a long way, Victorian and up to the Second World War and so on. 
Uh, and and my memory of particularly ADHD as it was introduced to me as a trainee uh, was that it was an alternative to the diagnosis of conduct disorder, which even I think in itself shows a kind of a switch that was uh, going on uh, because conduct uh, kind of blamed the child and parents. Uh, it didn't have to, but it could, and it lent itself to that, poor parenting, misbehaving child. And I think part of the deal that's often offered to parents is actually this is uh, their biology, this is their structure, their brain, there's something wrong with them, Nothing, no blame shall go to you, and perhaps some resources in school could be given. Uh, and, you know, we have these medications that could assist like as a package to be uh, uh, to be offered but you make a very interesting point i thought in the shift from manufacturing to service industry has demanded a greater level not uh, like the manufacturing industry would demand a certain amount of physical coordination uh, showing up on time being able to carry out particular tasks particularly repetitively uh, and not get too bored and uh, conduct disordered about it. Uh, but that in the modern uh, development of industry, the service industry needing to deal with people and to do so in a way that, you know, as they say in Hollywood, you know, sincerity is the key. When you can fake that, you're in. Uh, and you touch on that issue that what service industries are trying to get their employees to do is not just to have the social skills to be social, but to have the social skills to sell a service, i.e. to almost misuse your social skills, so that those children who are in some ways finding the acquisition of social, of learning how to, be, uh, how to integrate socially with others, are seen increasingly as more seriously uh, defective as such, in the, the words of Vygotsky, who used to talk about how why are we always concentrating on the defects? Why don't we look on how the child gets the skill rather than, you know, a detailed examination of how they haven't got the skill? But that you saw it as some way paralleling the rise of uh, the service industry. I was intrigued by that. So there's maybe one step to add into mm. this narrative between getting to trying to look at the political, economic and social drivers mm. and this lack of lack of scientific basis um, uh, which is that once you realize that there is uh, that the, the scientific basis is missing, you have to start asking that question well, well why are we seeing mm. this expanding number? yeah it's obviously nothing to do with the science um, so, so what's what's going on here and of course, you enter into a different type of um, epistemology, if you like, where you're, uh, it's going to be a lot more speculative. So, so the one thing I can say empirically, and be totally confident about saying that empirically, is that um, what we call ADHD, autism, in the current scientific status, are not neurodevelopmental disorders, and they are not genetic. I can say that with confidence. Um, uh, and so why are we becoming, uh, so, uh, so caught up in this pathologizing? And what is it that we're looking for? What is the ideal human being that we're constructing that means that these young people and, and older people become objects of concern? Or suspicion that there's something they're falling short in some way that they they need to be remedied, and this is where my interest is in. First of all, the growth of ADHD happened started really in the 50s and 60s uh, in America and got going properly in America in the 1970s. Took a bit longer to to reach us, and 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 it's gradually being globalized. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, a lot of that seems to relate to perhaps an increasing. Um, so the 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 uh, what counts these days as a normal person and as a normal parent has got narrower and narrower. Mm. 
and what falls outside of these remas. Because if you look at um, uh, some of the anthropological studies from other cultures, behaviors that we think of as ADHD behaviors are generally not seen as something to arouse concern, particularly in, in uh, boys when they're growing up, and are certainly not seen as something to arouse concern in, in a medical way. So that that is a that is a very new phenomenon. So um, some of that is related to um, um, what I see as diagnoses have become what I think of as brands. They operate as brands in the market, and some of them are extremely popular brands. So one extremely popular, if you can um, medicalize uh, the behavior of children then that's a very popular brand and it will grow lots of products around it and it will sell well because there is uh, a lot of concern about children and their behavior. And this is where ADHD and at a later stage autism comes in. So ADHD is related to that concern about uh, how well children are going to do in a system that increasingly wants more educated workforce. Mm and stresses things like the ability to concentrate. Mm. And, of course, it, it, it is a, a modern way of looking at how to um, make children obedient mm. to mm. Uh, adult demands in a culture that's moved beyond the idea that we make them obedient through various, uh, uh, you know, more more physical yeah. interventions. Yeah. Um, but then more recently, because autism, the growth of autism is, is, is the, a much more recent phenomenon. Yeah. You know, it's may, maybe the last 20 years, but particularly the last 15 years, I would say. It's kind of, uh, ADHD has reached its plateau and autism is still on the upward. And that does seem to coincide with an era where that whole thing of individualization and almost branding of the self has become so from from an early age in some way you have to stand out yeah. you have to show that there is something different about you there is something um and you have to be able to demonstrate in the workplace these days in many workplaces you have to be able to demonstrate that you can do the you know the you know the McDonald's have a nice day yeah yeah, um, which started creeping into customer relations. Yes, the fake so sincerity. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so much more customer-facing um, uh, work involved, uh, where you're talking to people. So you have to show that ability. And if you look at things that comes out of um, management and sales, it's all about how you can get the person to have some empathy with the person to show that them. In order to, in order to be a better salesperson, but also in order to be a better manager of your workforce. Mm. So in order to get obedience from your workforce in, in, in this kind of modern era, you have to show, um, a, a bit better people skills rather than just telling them what, what they're meant to do. So this idea of a, a public facing, um, persona and your ability to do that has become a much bigger issue in the workplace than it was, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago where we had a much more industrialized uh, based um, uh, economy. So, uh, and yeah. And of course, the third one is the child depression. Yes. Which, uh, um, so the other interesting things that happens um, because in a market-based economy, when we create these narrowing ideas of 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 um uh, of what the well functioning ideal person should look like we've had um uh, and those go into the marketplace so things that are considered to be um not good for you that you should try and remedy um they become objects of marketization so the successful brands find themselves 
uh, if they're successful amongst children, they start migrating into the adult population. So mm. ADHD eventually started to become adult ADHD, mm. and autism has now also migrated into the adult. And yeah. it does something very interesting when it migrates because the the main your your predominant um, audience to capture your brands when you're an adult is not the same as your predominant audience to capture your brands when you're a child. Mm. It migrates much more towards uh, women um, and uh, it's a way, if you like, of individualizing the, the social challenges of being uh, a woman in late capitalist society. Mm. So what you find with um, uh, ADHD and autism is this idea that it presents differently in women. Yeah. And um, because that that is your main that is your your main customer base. Actually, just so before you, before we move on, because I, I want to move on a little to the treatment, because your your uh, criticisms of the treatment. One thing that does strike me there, and it struck me reading the book, was uh, almost like now third wave. Uh, is mm. in the way that uh, that the approach to adults of uh, you know tag and treat was then applied to children in a very similar way. We now see so the the adult form of of uh, approach was applied very crudely to the children, lost some of the complexity of development and uh, uh, the kind of environmental or contextual stuff. And now we're seeing, and now the children, uh, the the move to do that and has been so successful because ADHD can label ten, fifteen, twenty percent of boys in some areas. Uh, yeah. So it's a it's a massive market, and then the follow-on that children grow up into the adults is now meaning yeah. that there's a little backwash from childhood mm. to to uh, adulthood. But I wanted to move on a little bit to say, uh, like the the you cover very well in the book, uh, particularly the drug treatment of ADHD, the absolute absence of uh, evidence of efficacy in any of uh, any of the things that really we 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 uh, it is sold to parents that if their attention and their level of activity improves in some way uh then they will you know do better in social relationships they'll do better in their educational achievements and so on and what parents can is going to resist the notion they'll have more friends and they'll do better in school do you want that it's like of course you want that but that the research really not alone doesn't show any advantage, particularly in the long term. It can show some symptomatic changes in attention uh, and uh, activity levels. But in terms of making friends and doing better in school, not alone is there no evidence, even in the short term of that, there's uh, some evidence in the long term that they actually do worse. So we really are selling a bogey with the drug treatment of these children. But in your book, now in the last 10, 15 minutes, I want to talk a little about uh, alternative approaches to the mm. tagging and drugging of children, which is really the crude end of what's happening uh, in the mental health industry to the most vulnerable, to children who are developing minds and bodies. We are pumping in uh, chemicals that are literally in ADHD terms. They are amphetamines or amphetamine, the cousin of amphetamines. Yep. But they are, you know, very yep. powerful stimulants. So... But then coming on to some of the alternatives, you cover quite well in the book that just because it's not a drug and it's a psychotherapy, it doesn't mean, you know, we're home and dry now, just jam in loads of psychotherapies, we'll use less drugs and everything will be fine for the children. You you, you don't really favor that. No. Um, so my, my um, one of the things that the book was really about is uh, we do get a reasonable amount of uh, critique which kind of falls into an idea that pharmacotherapy is bad, psychotherapy is good. And I wanted to get beyond that because yeah. uh, I I don't think I don't think that is the um that is the most helpful way of understanding what's going on. So I'm trying to uh, w what I tried to do with the book is to try and unpack the assumptions that drive the way we think about the paradigms, if you like, that we use. 
And um, the paradigm that we use it, it can be just as problematic when we use psychotherapeutic approaches. If you're using psychotherapeutic approaches from the starting point that you have some special technique that you're applying mm. to the person's psychology, which um, which fixes something that's going wrong. That paradigm is very widely spread amongst the psychotherapies, not just amongst the pharma pharmacotherapies. So they're they're given in an almost prescriptive way, in a similar way to the the, the way we might give uh, a pharmaco pharmacological treatment. It's the idea that there is something that I can understand from a technical point of view, classify you into this, and this is the treatment that's going to correct what's going wrong in the way you think. It's kind of, um, it looks at the therapeutic relationship using a surgical model. So it's the idea that the anesthetic is a bit like your therapeutic relationship to try and bring the person under your spell. And once the person is under your spell, um, you can delve in there like the surgeon, <laughs> extract the... Um, you know the, the dysfunctional thoughts, yeah. so that uh, you know you, you, you've extracted them, and the person is fine. He's got they've got rid of you know these yeah. these horrible things that were going wrong. And as I started to look at what we the the popular or or if you like the industrialized forms of therapy that we use in a kind of a, 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 in a mass way that's woven into the treatment guidelines that we have. Um, they are just as empty to me as the scientific paradigm that we've created around, or the pseudoscientific mm. paradigm we've created around um, the concepts that we use. So most of them seem to me just to be extensions of what I would think of as Western folk psychology. So if you like, look at cognitive behavioral therapy, and, and this is not to say that it's not going to be useful for some people, and I would certainly prefer to have that than uh, things that are going to change the chemical makeup in my brain. Um, I would certainly rather rather have that, but there's no magic going on here. There's 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 no great discovery going on here. Yeah, it's just an extension of, of a of a Western philosophical position, which um, more or less says. Uh, to the person using a veneer of scientific language and process, it's more or less saying to the person, don't focus on the negatives. Yeah. 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 That's basically what it is. Yeah. If you look at behavior therapy, it can be summed up. And I've, and I've heard one of the leading experts at a, at, at a, um, a, uh, a conference talk that he was giving. One of the leading experts on behavior therapy, Professor Marx, you might have heard of him, mm. and um, and he goes through all of these new developments and the research. And right at the end, he says, "Really, behavior therapy comes down to facing your fears." Yeah, and that's all it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, fundamentally, fundamentally, nothing yes. really. Yes, you, you describe the two styles: one yeah. kind of walking gently up yeah. to the the feared object, and yes. the other being pretty much thrust in front of us uh but and an awful lot of it is again the confidence you have in your guide that your guide wouldn't expose you to something that would hurt yeah. you uh, is what what binds you and may make you help you take a step forward but it, again it is no it, it it it's a simple trick and for some simple i mean in some ways phobias are kind of simple things in other ways they're actually quite complex in that you you get them from somewhere uh, very often your immediate surroundings, your family, people who are afraid of spiders usually have someone else in the family and so on. But uh, I think when you move on, I, I think your, your neatest argument in a way, having made the Western and we have this, uh, again, simplistic, you have a, a, a thought, it leads to a feeling and that makes you take an action that is not helpful. It's like, yeah, we know we do that. Okay. And it's nice to be helped just not to fall back into that as we are yeah. stressed or whatever. That's not a, in any way a bad thing, but it is the kind of stay positive, you know, if like the Disney, if you, if you really want us, you'll get it and all that kind of positivistic 
you know, simple advice, which is true and it has a certain value, but it is simple. But you move on to mindfulness, and I'm quite interested in that because, again, it, it purports to come from a kind of an Eastern philosophical base in Buddhism and so on. But doesn't it in some ways again draw attention to the fact that whether it's East or West, a lot of the uh, kind of ideas that uh, are promoted to us are ones that, again, just get back to that old idea is that the fault is within yourself. What you have to do is accept that life is tough uh, and that you are not good at coping with it, uh, but that if you accept it and, you know, chill out, you will be okay. Uh, and don't bother going and trying to change your surroundings, particularly don't bother joining up with anybody else who might have a similar difficulty uh, which is, again, why I love things like Madden America and, you know, groups who are saying, hey, me too. Uh, why don't we get together and resolve this? Mindfulness is like, no, 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 just you on your own. <laughs> Sit there and listen to the tape. And chill. and again, I mean, I like mindfulness things. I mean, they're good. They do chill me out. They do calm me down when I, I need a bit of acceptance and I need a bit of. But they're very one sided. It reminds me of the, the old Buddhist notion of one hand clapping. It's like, yes. Okay, some mindfulness, very good, acceptance and quiet and so on. But what about the other side, sociality and action and changing your environment for the better? Where does that fit in? Yeah, um, the mindfulness one is interesting because it shows, uh, it reveals again how things get fitted into a certain paradigm, a framework, a way of thinking about things. So my my starting point is, um, or if you like, the point that I get to when I question these assumptions and why I also critiqued uh, psychotherapy, is that in the end, the only thing that I think you can say with any certainty about the mind is that it's a, it's a meaning-making hmm. um, a, a organ, if you like. Um, it, it's there to help negotiate our way through the world around us. By definition, it cannot exist without a world to exist mm. within, because that's, that's its job. And we make sense of the world through the frameworks that we have um, available to us. So I see all the different approaches that we use in the, in the world of um, services for what we call mental health as different philosophical positions and that essentially we exist more or less as philosophical guides mm. so to me the different types of uh, therapeutic models that we use are just different philosophical positions and you can see what happens to something that comes from a different philosophical perspective because mindfulness originally comes from meditative practice particularly in Buddhist, but also in, in Hindu um, uh, uh, ways of um, spirituality and, and mm. thinking and understanding. Yeah. But they're only one part of a whole system of the way they think about the world. Now, meditation and, and other practices in Buddhism mm. is all about ego dissolution. Yes, all rather than yes, to, settling your ego. understand your yes. connection to people and yes. the physical world hmm. around you and your compassion and for them rather than yourself yes exactly. that's very true yes. and it turns into mindfulness it gets squeezed hmm. into a different philosophical system hmm. which is um, <clears throat> that kind of western individualism and it's the consumer culture that needs us to have fragile egos or needs us to assume that we have something that we need to keep nourishing um uh, our sense of self. Hmm. Before um, so before we finish, we're going we, we're going to have to finish up in about I'm um, uh, sure. in about five or ten minutes. I'm just wondering. You you give very honourable mention to uh, um, a a practice open dialogue, which as as you emphasise, and I thought that was really nicely put in your book that this is not just an approach used in the Western Lapland uh, mental health services. It is the Western health, it is the approach of yeah. the, the yeah. Western Lapland uh, services. And I think that's an important distinction that this is a, a grounding and underpinning 
yeah. uh, approach. Uh, and you also mentioned the power meaning threat. Uh, uh, maybe just a quick notion for people. Again, when you hear a lot of the critiques of what we're doing wrong, it is important. And I think you do it very well in the book and you give a lot of uh, you give a lot of very good advice, to, uh, particularly the chapters in the end, I think are very well worth reading. A lot of what we've been talking about, very useful for mental health professionals to get some sort of bearing on where things are going wrong for us. But I think, again, anyone in the system who reads your last uh, f- uh, few chapters will really get a sense of what the kind of alternative shape looks like, which is much more it's more negotiated it's much more uh two-way it's much more dialogue based so the the open dialogue approach you would see it i think from reading what you say in your book and from what i know of it i thoroughly approve would be a very good starting place for every mental health service to really adapt rather than bring it in as some sort of add-on or some sort of new one-trick pony we have enough of them exactly yes Again, we're, we're back to frameworks. That's mm. the main difference between the open dialogue as it was originally developed. So I'm quite interested in how they develop this as their service rather than as a clinic in their service. Because there are now open dialogue projects, but they tend to operate as clinics within mm. the service. Yeah. And to me, that's not good enough. Yeah. Uh, and it is about the framework that you have your service um, developing. And so what I liked about the open dialogue is this was a process that they involved the whole team in developing over time. They went on trainings together. They thought about how they were going to operate. They developed processes. Um, and there was something about the value system that they took on as a team, which is, uh, which, which formed the basis. And that value system included things like um, they weren't going to think diagnostically. There wasn't, uh, there's no evidence that, you know, this idea of matching treatment to diagnosis. Um, there's no evidence that that's what improves outcomes. Um, they were going to take people's real life uh, context. They were going to create safe spaces for people to, um, uh, to, uh, tell their story. But very importantly, they were going to pay attention to the social network. Who are the important people in yeah. their lives? How is this social network being disrupted? Mm. What can be done to help that social network feel a part of the mm. treatment process? And um, uh, so I think it's uh, values of, of things like that. And I, I also mentioned mm. the development in, in Italy, which... Um, oh, Basalia, yes. The psychiatry movement yes. was very much a recognition that mental health is a political Yes. thing as much as it is a health thing and um uh, and the principles for the development of democratic psychiatry in in italy has been very much around the idea that um people with what we call mental health struggles are part of a community hmm. and it is the things uh, around them that are uh, important so rather than doing things that actually can further alienate both the community from them and then them from the community. They work with local housing, they work with local mm. councillors, they develop their own businesses that are run by service users. They, you know, the, the, the people who use their services are integrated into the community. And it, I know of other services mm. that, it, that it do does, that. It does strike me as, uh, when I read the Basalia piece, because uh, just in, in, in the general terms of uh, um, politics in Ireland, and I think in many countries around the world, uh, housing has become a central focus as a crisis of availability, of cost, and so on. Uh, and yet Basalia's uh, key intervention was, in its fundamentals, an issue of not just the lack of treatment, the the uh, presence of mistreatment of patients, and he was very good on that, but the notion that was that this is where they live, that the psychiatric yeah. hospital is their housing, it's their accommodation. 
it shouldn't be where they live. And he addressed early on uh, what I loved about him was his absolute sense of democracy of pulling people together within the asylum to say, hey, this is your gaff. You are the ones who live here. You should be having a fundamental say in how this this house operates. Uh, and the, the later notion that, that really this house is not a suitable house for humans to live in. We shouldn't be putting people into housing. Uh, you know, maybe as a, a as a a link to perhaps how we will perceive struggles arising in which the boats of mental health will rise along with the rising tide, because certainly Basalia was rising on the rising tide of the radicalization of the 60s and 70s, that it is perhaps, it occurred to me because I was thinking in my head, where are we going? Where's this coming from? We're going to come from. I see where Sammy is going and what he desires. And I love the fact that you say, look, this, this thing, this thing is unsupportable. This needs to go. You know, the current mental health model has no future. It is a matter of time. And I was just thinking that when you came to Basalia, which is towards the end and your, your excellent section on neoliberalism, as in how we do things in society is affecting how we do things in mental health. It really did occur to me that again, maybe one of the movements, we're seeing it at the moment, the movement to address having housing as a, a, a primarily an issue of the profits of large corporations rather than the use of people as a place to live, a fundamental human right, that in the process of questioning that, we also bring up issues of what are we doing uh, in mental health, how housing is affecting mental health. I, I often get bothered when people ponder on why are young people so nervous and worried about the future? It's like, because the future is really worrying in terms of it how is. am I going to get a house? Yeah. How am I going to get a job? And so on. Maybe just to, to bring us out then, where, <coughs> excuse me, where do you, okay, so maybe the housing campaign, where do you see, where's where's your hope uh, coming from for the future? Uh, how do you see it, even just broadly speaking, how do you see perhaps uh, some uh, gains being made in this area of undermining the current paradigm and bringing in some of the others one one of the things one of the things that i think um i've uh felt in terms of mental health is that the um the critical movements uh, and it is movements rather than a movement yeah yeah have been great gaining pace in all sorts of different places um, so we've got the Critical Psychiatry Network, which we're both part of. There's a there's a growing uh, group of critical psychologists who produce mm. things like the Power Threat Meaning Work yeah. um, framework and are very active. There's a growing service user movement. Mm. And there's there's a there's the a Hearing Voices Network. Yeah. Hearing Voices Network, Disorder for yeah. Everyone. Yeah. Safety Health Spaces. There's a growing network of these yes. organisations. And, and my perception of, um, working in mental health services is that, um, the opinions that I had in the book, um, I think is the majority opinion amongst the people who work in mental health services. Mm. I don't think this is a minority opinion. Yes. It is not the majority opinion amongst those who have the most power. The officer class, yes. Yes, the rank and file and the officer, there is a division coming there. I, I would agree with you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we don't ever know is when does that point where a critical mass is big enough that hmm. something happens <laughs> yeah. to push that critical mass into becoming something a lot more visible and something that can push change in a system. I always think of uh, the, you know, what what happened in the Eastern Bloc. No, uh, apparently, not even um, the CIA or MI5 could foresee how quickly the Eastern Bloc w w was going to fall yes. uh, as a system. Yes, I, I, yeah, um, I, I think Ceausescu yeah. was possibly. One of the most dramatic, yeah. like one minute he's addressing the crowd and uh, everyone is terrified of him. Uh, and the next, yeah. you know, and then someone yeah. starts chanting the name of uh, of the uh, the town where a massacre was carried out. And literally within days, he was gone. He was gone. He was gone. Like this edifice of, you know, totalizing authoritarianism was just just was no more. Yeah. 
It can it can fall fast. <laughs> it's true. Listen, uh, I'm going to I'm going to uh, uh, take us out, um, Sammy. And thank you. Listen, thank you so much for that. I, I really I would ad- advocate uh, people uh, get Sammy's book, Insane Medicine, uh, and uh, it's available on Kindle. You, I think you you emailed me that it is also available in full on the Madden America website. Okay. Uh, now. With your Middle East background, I'm sure you'll uh, approve. I'm going to go out with a poem, because uh, a fantastic uh, culture of poetry from where uh, you you come from, or way way back. Uh, uh, and it is by a 17 year old boy. His mum was on the uh, my podcast last week, uh, or the last episode. A- Adrian Murphy, uh, a wonderful uh, journalist uh, and mother of Queeve uh, Queeve Connolly, who's a 17 year old boy. He's non verbal poet. Uh, and uh, it is, in many ways, the voice of a voiceless poet. And it's called Hope. And it's a poem that he wrote to support uh, some Mauritian uh, fishermen who were devastated by an oil spill from the MV uh, Wakashio, which was a Japanese oil tanker, crashed uh, on some reefs there. And obviously the oil spill devastated the livelihoods of the fishermen. So there was a collection of poetry uh, and he submitted and he won first prize. And this is his, well, it's an acrostic. So the, the first letter of every line uh, adds up uh, to the word hope. So here it is. This is Cueve Connolly, uh, a wonderful young poet, Hope. Hope sometimes seems to evaporate. Only it becomes more every time it returns. People need hope to survive. Even stone people. So that's uh, that's Queeb's poem. Uh, he talks about stone people being, uh, you know, other children like himself, and he's a young man now, uh, who who can't speak and appear like stones. But uh, I think Queeb pro- proves wonderfully that uh, certain stones have wonderful beating hearts uh, and just the compassion of that to reach out uh, to these fishermen all of those miles uh, away and I'm so delighted he won first prize he deserves it for that uh, with that I'm just going to say <clears throat> thanks to everybody who uh, listens in to this if you have any suggestions for topics or guests please do contact me ogrady.padder at gmail.com at o-g-r-a-d-y dot p-e-a-d-a-r at gmail.com Uh, Thanks again, Sammy, and goodbye for now. Hope you all get well and stay well.